Uh, this is David Nishimoto, and welcome to the show. We'll be talking about machine learning for the next uh, little bit. And uh, if you have questions that you would like to have me answer or uh, ideas to explore in machine learning, uh, would be happy to discuss that. I'm on the road, so there is going to be some background noise, but uh, hopefully uh, this podcast will become interesting. Uh, just to give you some credentials on my background, um, I'm a uh, Weber State University graduate. I was a highly prized student while I was there and uh, attended uh, the computer science department lectures and uh, worked with many of the faculty and eventually, as an adjunct, taught for 10 years uh, computer graphics. But during that time, I had uh, a minor in mathematics and I became interested in neural nets and uh, especially the neural uh, back air propagating neural net. And that's a uh, <clears throat> interesting, uh, an interesting design because I was doing also at the same time ray tracing and uh, we were using uh, tangents and secants to um, get the numerical root converging uh, solutions. So we were using Newton method in numerical analysis and we were using uh, gradients and uh, different numerical approximation algorithms to get to a, a hopefully a global root solution and there were a lot of algorithms at that time that uh, uh, were even more promising than numerical methods I remember one that was particularly interesting what was a polynomial algorithm and uh, they were using that to fly a plane. And so they were getting uh, solutions to polynomial equations uh, through a linear algebra approach. And they uh, felt that it was more efficient because it was giving discrete um, answers to the questions that you would ask and, and want to know uh, from almost like a linear programming standpoint. But uh, while I was working uh, on these neural nets, uh, we realized that uh, we were using uh, uh, sigma function and uh, converged to a solution. If it was greater than uh, 0.5, then there was an answer. If there was less than 0.5 on the neuron, then it was an uh, inhibitor. So we had uh, exciters and inhibitors, and, and it really was, quite fascinating to see what you could do with a neural net. <clears throat> uh, one of the solutions that, that I worked on is uh, to teach the neural net how to do uh, addition uh, using a feedback uh, mechanism. I was able to feed back one solution back into the neural net and uh, <clears throat> as a carrier and uh, then have it teach it to uh, do addition. So it not only had a feedback mechanism to it, which was part of cybernetics, <clears throat> it also uh, was able to uh, correctly identify a pattern. 
And I think that's what neural nets are so good about, is the ability to classify and identify patterns uh, that may be even invisible to us. So this new era of deep learning has become exciting because the neural net actually does better with more data. So the more data it gets, the more accurate it becomes. And with the uh, expandable uh, servers and, and computational capabilities, you don't run into the limitations of a uh, traditional von Neumann architecture, which would be that eventually uh, you run out of uh, um, cycles in the pipeline, and uh, and then you have to trade off computation against uh, time. So um, the trade-off in training the neural net uh, was it seemed like it took a long time for the neural net to train. And, and uh, even even with the simple patterns that we were using, um, the back air propagation would, would uh, you know, feedback uh, adjust minor adjustments on the on the weights on the line, and eventually, once you got your your trading algorithm to converge <coughs> to a certain percentage, then you knew that that the neural net had properly trained and now was ready for usage. And that could take, uh, depending on a you know the, the, in the in the day, it would take a long time. So there were. Companies that were building hardware boards, uh, expensive hardware boards, in excess of a couple thousand dollars, to uh, accelerate the, the speed of the neural net. Today, it's uh, amazing, but you can use uh, NVIDIA's graphic cards, and they could be tapped, APIs could be tapped and utilized to train neural nets. So, uh, with, you know, less than probably a couple thousand dollars, you could have the equivalent of a super mainframe in the time, uh, in the era that I was studying neural nets. And so neural nets now have become so popular, so prevalent, they're going to be in everything. And uh, every company that uh, is, uh, is wondering about whether they should incorporate a neural net uh, is probably late in the game. Uh, neural nets if not used, or deep learning or machine learning not used in their company now, uh, is a signal that they're probably going to be non-competitive in the future. And that goes across every sector of business. And uh, it's just going to be with the introduction of IoT devices, <clears throat> massive collection of data in terms of large data. Uh, and you have to have some mechanism for analyzing this data and making sense of it. And uh, the only way you can do that uh, is either through uh, business intelligence, which is a set of, of tools um, that are aggregating data and uh, looking for particular trends uh, and uh, drawing conclusions from those trends. Whereas the, the neural net also uh, is drawing classifications and conclusions but it's a, extracting out rules um, that may not be known, uh, that are hidden in the data. And so for that reason, 
the neural net uh, is is far superior, far superior. And it almost, uh, in some ways, I could see the future potential for neural nets uh, for extraction of data. Just because when you look at when you look at a complex system, there are so many different pathways to explore the data, and those pathways are largely known <coughs> based on its uh, foreign constraints or relationships between each of the tables. So if you have uh, one table that is dependent on another, that uh, is a driving table, a parent table, you might say, a lookup table, uh, and it has a, a uh, ID that can be identified in that uh, parent table as a constraint, <coughs> then um, you know the, those those uh, type of relationships can definitely be explored. <clears throat> so then the question is, is well, why can't we just use a neural net, uh, similar like the way our brain explores its data uh, by exploring different pathways, known pathways, uh, figuring out uh, what the possible relationships are, exploring those pathways, uh, drawing conclusions. Uh, pulling together classifications, aggregations, and then making that information uh, interesting, whether it be, you know, how data is clustering together uh, or uh, possibly patterns, <coughs> interesting patterns that the, the, the neural net uh, identifies as, as uh, interesting. It could be like things like fraud, uh, things like... Uh, uh, embezzlement, uh, acts of deception that are uh, revealed in the data that are abnormal from some sort of standard. Um, the other, the other idea behind this is to use the neural nets not necessarily for um, things that are are devious or or uh, in that sense uh, destructive, but use the neural net for things such as Six Sigma. So you could use uh, the neural net to um, correctly identify statistical variation. So in terms of a plant uh, or, you know, in a manufacturing, you would want to use the neural net to identify various trends uh, in the data and then look for uh, deviations from a standard. So you would calculate <clears throat> a mean, uh, then you would calculate a certain number of standard de deviations away from the mean, and then look for uh, cases in all your data where the neural net's exploring all the data that it can collect and identify variations. It could be variations in time, like when a uh, uh, per, uh, person clocks in, clocks out, uh, you know, standard operations, scheduled operations, and uh, looking for variations in time. It can also look for variations in uh, sick leave or off no pay or uh, uh, SLFMA and identify individuals that are outside the norm. Uh, and those become important because they may either be uh, in violation of corporate policy, or uh, they could be subject to possibly some sort of counseling that is required by company policy. So um, the neural net 
is uh, should be constantly working. It could be looking uh, at aggregations in terms of uh, accounts, looking to see you know if, uh, uh, certain accounts are over or under budget. It could be looking at things, uh, uh, sudden spikes in actual payments from the norm on a five-year cycle where maybe a, a part broke down or maybe there was an accident and then that caused a, a high increase in costs and uh, the neural net then could start making predictions that, uh, you know, what was the impact of this accident and predictions on a five-year whether it's going to cause uh, the company to face uh, sharp repercussions that maybe start to predict uh, things like a, a potential layoff or uh, you know adjustments in the uh, uh, different accounts to make up for the loss in, in, the, in the company. So it can learn a lot. It can learn a lot from cash flow. It can learn a lot from the uh, liability. It can analyze the general trends and interest rates. Uh, it could be exposed and, and query out the interest rates that uh, uh, exist in the uh, world, exchange rates, and predict the direction of the interest, and then calculate the possibilities of uh, the impacts of those interest rates on the loans that the company has. And, and uh, you know, they say that the the function of companies uh, is largely taxes and interest rates. So if a company is operating heavily in debt, uh, the neural net can analyze the effect of the debt on the company's growth and, uh, and uh, make predictions on uh, potential costs in the future, learning from the models of the past. So as you can see, that uh, neural nets inside financial companies, in financial aspects, is going to be very important because the ability to predict uh, on the model is an economic, uh, it's an economic feature, uh, largely done by large companies using advanced software packages like SaaS, but uh, necessary in uh, even small companies to survive. And so forecasting, budgeting, uh, prediction are all going to be a, uh, integral parts of the future. So when we think of neural nets and, art and deep learning, you know, we often are, are quite afraid of, of the future. Uh, uh, the idea that, you know, the neural nets will turn the whole world into a uh, gray goo. And that's largely a mythical concern. You know that the, the neural net will learn so fast, and learn so much faster than the human beings. One of the big uh, fallacies of that thought is the fact that uh, we've had the ability, the human brain has had so many, uh, you might say, mechanisms within it that balance it. Uh, it's a perfect design. You know, you look at the brain, how it manages information, you know, it processes 10 trillion bytes per second, yet it doesn't overload in the sense that we don't go crazy from all of the <coughs> processing of the data. Uh, we are able to recall or bubble up uh, important facts and uh, concepts. 
but we're able to creatively synthesize this data into new data. And that's what makes the brain so unique. Uh, we can dream. We can, we can uh, uh, receive insights and discernment into uh, cognitive concepts. And, uh, you know, that's something that a machine, if it were able to gain that level of consciousness, would be extremely powerful in the sense that uh, it could be processing like in parallel billions, billions, trillions of different concepts. It could it could it could be processing every every conscious uh, concept, conscious thought that uh, humanity has ever uh, conceiving at the moment or will ever conceive. And so, uh, uh, you know, the the idea that the machine will be superior to the being is always a fear, but uh, I don't I don't fear that because I think that the machine uh, it it there's it, the the mechanisms of the brain are vastly uh, complicated, and even the control mechanisms for how the neurons are firing, all the different types of neurons, all the mathematics for simulating those neurons, it's uh, you know it was not a a 10-year project to discover all that, it, it, and it definitely will not be a 20-year project, but it could be a lifetime project to discover even how the brain forms uh, simple thought patterns that, that we are so familiar with. And so this idea of thought pattern, cognitive recognition of abstract thought, the ability to build new thought from existing thought, and to have a, uh, uh, I guess you would say, call it a kind of a foundation of thought for future thought or for institutional thought that the group collective can understand is something that, that the machines have not achieved yet. And so this idea that a, a something without an institutional thought ruling over or, or controlling uh, human humanity seems to me to be far uh, a far-fetched concept. Um, <clears throat> the idea of the the great goo is kind of like almost something from a sci-fi movie. Um, it uh, it makes you kind of wonder, you know, uh, if if you watched uh, Michael Crichton's uh, State of Fear, where the nanotechnology uh, basically consumes matter and reorganizes and things like that. Uh, yeah, could you have a micro machine that could transform uh, matter? Yeah, of course you could. It, it could transform it. Uh, IBM has had the molecular, uh, I, I'm not sure what they, they call them, but they are able to move molecules around and they printed out the word IBM at the molecular level. So, uh, they've also had perpetual machines that take in some matter and they spit out a pattern of matter, almost like a ribosome, so it's an artificial ribosome. And when you think about DNA uh, and RNA, they are almost like little machines. You know, they're 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 reading along a set of code and then they are assembling the different sugar strands 
result of that code. So they can un unzip the code and then they can reassemble the code back, replicate the code back, almost like a machine. So uh, fantastic mechanism of nature that seems almost mechanical, but it's definitely not. It's a it's electrochemical process. It's not a mechanical process, and uh, and it. Uh, does not have a state of consciousness. It, it may have some level of intelligence, but it doesn't have a state of consciousness like we do. So um, the idea that uh, uh, machines ruling the world uh, just very, to me, uh, seems far-fetched. The idea that machines could destroy the world and leave it into a gray goo. Uh, the only way that that would be possible if it was weaponized if uh, and, uh, unleashed at a, a magnitude of replication that we've never seen. So uh, in order to replicate that capacity, it would mean that machines were creating other micro-machines. Now, can, can machines create other micro-machines? The answer is yes. Well, robots can make robots. And uh, at the rate uh, robots could make other machines, uh, it has... It is quite fascinating. Uh, we build, if you if you look at Toyota with the robotic uh, machines that do the welding, the painting, uh, there are portions where the robots work with uh, human beings. There's er other areas where ro robots are working exclusively, like putting the shell uh, on, uh, move, welding the shell into place, uh, dangerous, heavy mechanical movements where... Robots are moving thousands of pounds. Effortless looks like it's moving effortlessly in complex sequences, working in tandem. All these uh, uh, all these complex processes uh, being pulled off by state-of-the-art engineering, programming, and uh, 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 electrical actuators, machines, uh, gears, so forth, uh, making a product is quite fascinating. And so we do see robots building other machines at a phenomenal rate. And uh, we, we can see robots capable of building small machines. And it, the purpose would, in this case, to build small machines that could transform matter into another form of matter. So it would uh, have some sort of network capability, uh, it would also be a, almost like an engine of, cre engine of creation. It would have, uh, it would be networked. It would have a central processor. It would have algorithms that run on the processor. It may be uh, operating using its own neural network uh, and uh, acting in almost like an insect behavior and with uh, like an anti-algorithm, seeking out different food sources, collectively uh, gathering where those food sources are, and then using some sort of energy function of survivability to decide which way to, to migrate. Um, and those kind of, that kind of machinery, even though it could be simulated or perhaps it could even be built, uh, its usefulness or intent for warfare uh, would be somewhat questionable why why we would go to warfare where uh, insects uh, would be tormenting us and uh, pestilence at a magnitude far greater than actual insects would be capable of. 
also you could have a collection of robotic uh, grasshoppers that could decimate a country's uh, landscape, leaving it defoliaged and uh, without food, causing mass levels of starvation. And then you would have the severe um, the severe consequences of inhumanity against humanity and uh, those ethnic questions would enrage the world uh, causing a provocation of countries to react swiftly and with force against the country that uh, unleashed such a, a weapon and I guess you could say that uh, you know there have during Desert Storm there were terrible consequences to the uh, the landscape and war uh, unleashed uh, huge fields of burning oil, and uh, that burning oil uh, had devastating impacts on the uh, environment and the ecology. And so war is such a terrible and an immoral act that we should never engage in that. And uh, so the idea that we would engage using robots into an act of war of even greater horrific consequences seems quite illogical. And so that level of irrational thought is as proposed as a viable alternative to warfare seems illogical. So I would say uh, that we would only see that type of act if, if, uh, if the war planners believed in nihilism. Or in other words, they believed in the end of all life, and uh, the gray goo covers the earth, and uh, nothing is left uh, organic. So that uh, that that uh, artificial intelligence sphere, or is almost equivalent to evolution. And uh, that brings me to the next point: is you know, do evolutionary algorithms work? And uh, it seems to me that the uh, the you know there there is some uh, some validity to the genetic algorithms. They uh, uh, they do have fitness functions. Uh, they do have crossovers that uh, uh, help the survivability of a feature propagate to its progenitors, and that uh, the value of the the algorithms, the goals and constraints to the problems. Um, uh, do result in some interesting solutions. Um, it's always fun on YouTube to go see, you know, how the uh, the uh, genetic algorithm uh, moves a bipedal mode man and how the bipedal stick figure can learn how to jump over barriers and, and uh, some of the solutions for moving, you know, rolling around versus walking, uh, kind of crawling, <clears throat> and then eventually uh, upright bipedal motion and uh, locomotion that we're familiar with called running. And uh, genetic algorithms in that sense, uh, you know, they, they can be applied to uh, different environments to see what kind of solutions can be uh, generated. The only strange thing uh, I, I would say that, that you know, the, about genetic algorithms is that their solutions uh, are somewhat... Uh, mathematical and but they may not be aesthetically pleasing like I remember hearing about a uh, contest where they they were making a bridge and uh, they 
have the genetic algorithm trying to solve the problem of making a, a bridge with the least amount of material with the strongest uh, strongest structure. And the end result of the bridge was a strange-looking bridge, probably one that we would think, oh, that's, that looks terrible. You know, it just didn't have any aesthetic feel. You know, if you went to Dubai and you saw the beautiful bridges out there, and uh, then you replaced them with maybe the genetic algorithm bridges with minimal material with maximum strength for uh, support force, uh, people might say, oh, that is such an ugly structure. Let's get rid of it. So uh, genetic algorithms may be useful, but they may not be aesthetically pleasing. There's always that risk. And uh, so that's something to think about as we incorporate solutions from the genetic algorithms is that, you know, number one, we don't necessarily know all the reasons why the algorithm selected the solution it did. We just know that, you know, it went through large numbers of iterations. It had adjustments to its fitness uh, equations and, uh, and crop, cross uh, crossover uh, algorithms for cyber survivability were such that, uh, that, you know, it came up with that potential solution for that space. One of the big problems I see also in genetic algorithms is that you, you, we need a vast amount more of computational power in order to fill the space of all possible solutions. So if you're looking for solutions that can be generated by genetic algorithms, you're going to need a lot more computational capability. And so you'll have a huge data farms, a lot more electronics, a uh, lot more co computational cycles than what we're familiar with now to get enough solutions in the genetic uh, fields uh, that can be applied to be used, uh, that can be useful. And so the, our world of design and, uh, and architecture may be greatly influenced by the genetic algorithms as they come up with structures that allow us to be more productive, to be more interconnected, and uh, to support larger populations. So uh, it will be interesting to interface with such designs, and perhaps we will need computers to help us understand how to navigate a genetic uh, algorithm design because it's complex and it may not make sense to us because we're not familiar with those designs and archetypes that uh, have been developed over time. When we think of a bridge uh, one way, we, we think it should look a certain way, we, we accept suspension bridges as a safe way to commute over, uh, we, we, you know, the Romans had arch bridges, that was acceptable architecture, it was reason that the arches were stronger. Um, and we're capable of supporting the weight. <clears throat> and so these type of bridges, uh, we look at them, we go, okay, that's safe, I'll, cry, I'll drive over it. It looks uh, structurally sound, it doesn't move. Uh, I feel safe going over that bridge. So we have still a lot of uh, norms that we feel familiar with that we're willing to, uh, we're willing to accept and, and use. Um, well, this takes me to about the halfway mark of my one-hour presentation on neural net machine learning. 
And uh, if you if you're interested, uh, you can uh, give me a call at 208-606-6785, and uh, and I'll talk to you. And uh, you can definitely instant message me at uh, dnishimoto at listensoftware.com, and uh, you can talk to me on my podcast while I'm uh, on the road, and uh, we can talk about uh, uh, machine learning and and uh, uh, deep learning, artificial neural net. There's actually quite a few neural net structures, uh, many of which I've never heard of. But uh, I think it's good to also just maybe at a high level is to think about what the neural net is attempting to solve. And uh, then as you identify neural nets or learning algorithms that solve particular solutions, then talk to experts who have been using those uh, tools and discover the concept behind them. Because the concept behind each one of these structures is fairly simple. The math is very aggressive, very rigorous, is what they would call it. And uh, you may or may not be able to understand the mathematics, but why should you need to? Uh, it just works. And so what we would probably see more in the future is visual computing systems with machine learning algorithms that are easily selectable to the situation, incorporated in and get uh, predictable behavior in the uh, visual interface that we want, and uh, and as long as it's aesthetically pleasing and meets the expectations of the users, then it will be uh, it will remain in the algorithm. And as uh, better algorithms come along, or upgrades to the algorithm occur, then they can be replaced and, and uh, incorporated into the uh, existing algorithms. And uh, so systems will definitely become much more intelligent in that sense. And we can see kind of like this new era of um, visual computing uh, where, you know, the user interfaces now are more drag and drop, connect them together through delegate functions or uh, metadata or, or some sort of pointer function. And, uh, and uh, we have different levels of abstraction that allow for uh, scalability, polymorphic type of behavior. And so systems uh, are allowed to become more complex due to the object-oriented nature of our program. And uh, object-oriented has yielded itself well to visual systems. And they will also yield themselves very well to uh, learning systems, systems that can incorporate, analyze data in real time, uh, giving, uh, uh, pr uh, making predictions against the existing data and uh, algorithms that are being used. Um, so, you know, our future look going forward is, is uh, promising. The value of what the computer can do for us now is, is uh, 
it's going to be vastly changed. We're going to see uh, big increases in, in the usefulness of the machine. Uh, the mobile will replace the, the web. It's already starting to happen. Developers are uh, moving more to mobile solutions just because the larger audience will be mobile. And the mobile devices have become the new uh, portable computer. They're smart devices. They run complex operating systems. And uh, they're now incorporating into the devices uh, chips for deep learning and uh, machine learning. They integrate well with the cloud for moving, uh, accessing vast amounts of information stored in terabyte servers or petabyte servers. And so the real shortage is going to be logic and uh, data. You know, logic particularly will be the great shortage. And so we need to have a way to accelerate uh, useful logic. And uh, one, one way to do that is through machine learning. It's for the machine to use uh, problem-solving algorithms that uh, are mathematically based to get uh, to resolve to a solution, almost like Mathematica resolves to a solution when you give it in the proper parameters. It'll run through different uh, computational uh, algorithms, and it just gives you an answer. And that answer, in all cases, is correct if the parameters are proper. So that type of discrete outcomes are very exciting, you know, because uh, you may not need to know algebra or complex differential equations or uh, cellular autonomy or uh, quantum computing when that comes in. Instead, you just need to know in inputs and you condition the learning algorithms when they are correct outputs to the affirmative and inhibit the algorithms when they are incorrect outputs to the negative. And so because of that, we you know we can uh, start seeing some of this conditional programming due to higher levels of computational capability. And uh, so, you know, we look at animals, for example, like your dog or your cat, and they can be conditioned to do complex behaviors. Um, and it will be very likely that we will assemble a series of components in the future, and uh, we will conditionally uh, train that, those components, and they will remember their conditional uh, training, and they will behave according to their conditional training. So those, those conditions could be constraints, like the robot knowing the range in which it can move, the amount of pressure which it can apply. If uh, a robot applied too much pressure at a certain point, it could crush the object. It could hurt the human being. Uh, if a human being was standing there and it was moving, it needs to know that the acceptable range of motion when the human being is standing near it would be a certain range of motion, and if it exceeded that, there needed to be warning lights going off, uh, and there needed to be alerts to the human being that something was moving towards it that could potentially hurt it. Uh, also, there might, might need to be tactile feedback, where a human being could move the robot around, show it how to do something 
in a particular motion. The robot would need to retain that that motion and then conditionally uh, analyze it, refine the motion, use splines or B-splines to interpolate the data to make a smooth uh, a pathway motion and, uh, you know, put different weights on those those points so that they, it properly moved to those motions in a certain amount of real time and uh, in a certain manner. So those, those, those type of complex uh, motions can be programmed and, and they can be uh, and they can be stored and, and the, the behavior that can mimic uh, uh, that of a human being. So human beings are going to be very valuable in the future, very valuable to machines because they, they hold the collective knowledge. They hold the, they they learn, they adapt. They, you know something that the, the machines don't do. They they learn and adapt. They discern. They know, you know, we don't do this because it uh, it could break the material. And there's also some some myths that that machines are going to help us overcome. Things like where we think a certain way of doing things is more productive, and it turns out the machines through their algorithms find better ways to do things that are more efficient that uh, reduce time, that reduce cost. And, and, and so those benefits are going to be uh, big in the future. So uh, uh, you might say, well, so what? So what? So what? That's always the good, the good question is, so what? Uh, what uh, Where is all this going to take me? Where do I... Where do I go with this type of of, uh, of uh, logic, you know, thinking, reasoning, uh, passion? I guess you might say, you know, towards giving something that's inanimate, uh, such uh, love and devotion, and so much energy. Well, we want to just make sure that we understand one thing: a neural net is a machine. It's just a machine. When von Neumann and when Turing first examined, or, or even Babbage, for the, that matter, when he was rotating, looking at a loom, and uh, he was trying to automate the loom, and then by automating the loom, uh, Turing was able to reason that, hey, this loom had a algorithm, and algorithms could be simulated by turning of gears, and these turning of gears had a mechanical energy to it. So you turn these mechanical energy objects and you get uh, you get an algorithm from it, a function. Y equals F of X. And so the world of mathematics and physics now was all accessible through mechanical motion of gears. Obviously we didn't want to be turning millions and millions of gears, so we've the invention of the uh, digital transistor of on or off gateways opened up so we could do ands, ors, nots, and ands. And from those type of logic gateways, we were able to create all kinds of uh, different states. And those states that could be uh, translated into grammars, and those grammars that could be translated into a language, and uh, that the language could be, syntax could be compiled, and then it could be converted into 
uh, eventually ones and zeros that the machine microcode could read. And then it would apply uh, jumps, it would do, apply memory transformations, it would do uh, addition, division, multiplication. So again, we have a machine that is uh, mechanical. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, when you think about it, what do machines do? They do work. And so when we look at machine learning, deep neural nets, and genetic algorithms, it's all about the work that they can do for us, not the destruction that they can do because that's not useful. It's what they can do for us in the future. And they're just the work that they can do for us, we're just beginning to see. I remember my uncle talking to me years ago at my grandmother's 80th birthday and saying, we're and he'd worked on crazy supercomputers most of his career, and he had studied at uh, Hawaii and advanced astronomy and looked up at the stars. And they did crunching, you know, huge astronomical numbers to figure out whatever patterns that they were looking for. Today, you know, they look for supernovas in the sky, some persons out there watching the sky. They've got now some mechanical methods for scanning the sky, but they've only scanned small portions of the sky. And so eventually the machines will be able to do the work of scanning the skies. So what will we discover there? Will we discover new planets, planets with water? Will we discover uh, stars that are binary? Will we start, discover new galaxies? Uh, and will we discover supernovas? Much more supernovas than we thought, disproving the Big Bang Theory, which is going to be a shock, which I've been predicting for a long time, the Big Bang is not true. And so, uh, you know, as we get more data and we collect data and science starts to analyze it, machines start to analyze the data, many of our foundational belief systems will be challenged. And uh, the, that level of orthodoxy uh, that has ruled over the data will uh, be a disarray because either they will force us to remain in the dark ages or they will adapt and let the new light of discovery shine out upon them and we will enter into a new era of science and technology that we have never understood before and uh, the era of the dark ages will largely begin to dissipate uh, that can translate into other areas, into medicine, where machines are looking at, at the skin to detect whether you have a fungus or you have skin cancer. It'll be looking at uh, the analyzing the structure of the mitochondria and the cellular structures inside of a cell to determine if you have the beginnings of cancer. Uh, it may be doing analysis of MRIs and CAT scans to look for abnormalities in, and comparing those abnormalities against the vast database for enough for similar structures and similar uh, taxonomy. And it may also be making predictions of your likelihood to go have a reoccurrence, reoccurrence of a treatment 
reoccurrence of uh, a disease, a reoccurrence of cancer, a reoccurrence of uh, uh, high-risk behavior such as broken bones. You know, if you're a if you're a motocross uh, jumper, you may end up going to the hospital quite frequently, and then maybe the machine learning will make predictions about your lifestyle, and uh, that may affect your insurance. So those type of uh, applications of machine learning will be vast and, and large, and, and they will change how we, we see each other. Our reputations on the social networks are already being analyzed by the machines, whether or not our sentiments are positive or negative, uh, whether our reputations are good or bad. And uh, it's collecting all this information from all over the, the social networks, whatever is exposed, your birthday, your your preferences for food, what you like for movies. All these demographics now are being analyzed, and, uh, and uh, machine learning can present movies that it thinks that you like and offer to sell them to you. It can uh, tell you what the foods in the area are popular, like uh um, Grubhub, and uh, you know your your friends, the ones who like you. Uh, it can it can expose more of your information to the people who it thinks like you, and and inhibit information from the people who the machine thinks do not like you based on their responses or or. Uh, uh, based on their comments to you, the sentiment analysis on the comments to you. So those are the things that to, to consider as you uh, we move forward into the era of intense social networking where we're meeting more people, where we're talking to more people, where the communication is better. We're, you know, communicating with people from across the world. We're talking to them about vast number of different topics. We're uh, conceptualizing more concepts now than ever, and uh, communication is much more complex. We're learning different languages. We might be learning Mandarin, French, German, Japanese, Chinese. Uh, Chinese could be various different types. We can learn Thai. And all of these uh, different aspects to communication are uh, increasing our need to be able to conceptualize because communication is a uh, ability is the ability to build a model that makes sense in our mind and that we can universally share and so value systems will be important values ideology beliefs religion, uh, social social belief systems. And, you know, at the heart of this is maybe governments will be less important, that the individual power will be increasing while the government influence will be decreasing, just largely due to the fact that with more information, better communication, people are going to be sharing more ideas, and they're going to be building more. So the era of maker, those who make things, will be more important. Um, the power of discernment is the power to recognize a lie. 
And so when we recognize when things are not true, we avoid them. We avert risk. Discernment, the results of good discernment are less tension, better communication, less contention, less waste, less less inefficiencies. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Well, communication helps people cooperate. And I heard one person say, oh, well, I think competition is very good. And I love competition. I agree. I love competition. But I love cooperation a lot better. Collaboration and cooperation are far less wasteful than competition. Competition seeks to find the very best, the very best. And they waste so much in the effort to find the premium. And the only factors that distinguish the best from the second best might be small little preferences. Small little preferences. So, so much is wasted in the attempt to get to the top. Whereas cooperation builds uh, unlimited resources. Unlimited resources, unlimited possible uh, combinations of thought, ideas are being shared. This large number of combination of sharing of ideas is building the future, a better future, a brighter future. And so the era of cooperation is far better than the era of competition. Competition is wasteful. Large corporations have been too greedy. They they do give back money in the terms of philanthropy, and they they do benefit the poor in some cases. But cooperation will give back a vast, rich ecosystem of unmeasurable or unpredictable results from today. It will be measurable, but it will not be able to predict how much will result from the synergy of cooperation because it will be more than its parts. The collective wisdom of the whole will be much better than the collective wisdom of the individual. And so the results of cooperation are um, beneficial to the group. They will bring greater levels of safety and security, and we will have a better understanding of each other. And it's true that there will be groups out there on the web that are violent in nature, anti-establishment in nature, I guess, critical, skeptical, but I would say of all those groups, they probably won't be collaborating positively because positive collaboration requires non-critical thought in the sense of lack of belief. It requires faith that the group will prevail that faith will prevail. And you have to have faith. You have to have belief that things will turn out well. Otherwise, 
you'll give up. You will not put the work in. The machine cannot make up for your lack of faith or your lack of belief. You have to be willing to cooperate. And uh, so this, this uh, 